Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. I am joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Danny Bessner. And we're very lucky to have with us today, uh, on relatively short notice, Sina Tusi. Sina is a senior resident fellow, a non-resident fellow, excuse me, at the Center for International Policy. Uh, he also writes the Beyond Borders newsletter at Substack, sinabeyondborders.substack.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, Sina, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Uh, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So um, obviously we're here to talk about Gaza, but we're going to try a little bit different tack here and talk about some of the regional dimensions to what's happening in Gaza. So um, first of all, Sina, as you're, you know, sort of uh, a, 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 our, one of our expert Iran commentators, um, so much has been made, and I mean, you know, you can understand why, I guess, but so much has been made since October 7th of the relationship between the Iranian government, uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and Hamas. Um, can you talk about that relationship and maybe also the relationship uh, as it incorporates Hezbollah and either, you know, with the in connection with either of those parties? Yes. So it's, you know, Iran and Hamas have a close relationship. There's no doubt about that. A close Iran has been a financial, uh, military and political sponsor of Hamas. And this is despite the fact that you know, Iran is a Shia country, Shia Muslim country, and Hamas is obviously a Sunni kind of Islamist group. And, you know, in a lot of kind of uh, kind of the conventional thinking in Washington or in the U.S. and Europe is that, you know, this, they make a lot about the uh, Sunni Shia split. And but, you know, Iran has long been a patron of the Palestinians and especially this Sunni Islamist group Hamas. And but they've also had differences over the years and even kind of a big erosion of ties, especially during the Syrian uh, war and the uprising in Syria against Assad and where Hamas was based in Damascus and they fell out with Assad. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of the uprising against the Assad government was kind of uh, Sunni Islamist and Hamas. So their ties were actually damaged during those years, but, you know, they've been repaired uh, since then. And Hamas is basically part of this Iran. I mean, so this is, I think, an important distinction to be made because some people say that, you know, Iran's government is responsible for Hamas or Hezbollah and, you know, these other allies that the Iranian government has in the region. And I think that's a very gross simplifi sim simplification that these people, you know, the Palestinians or Lebanese will get to that, or Iraqis or Yemenis, these people have their own grievances. And the Iranian government kind of, for its own geopolitical and political interests, you know, gets involved in these conflicts and supports these people who are already, you know, fighting or who are already trying to advance their own interests. So it's not like Iran is creating these groups, you know. So Hamas was there. Hamas's origins go back to the 80s. So Iran right now, it's kind of network of alliances in the region that they describe it themselves as the resistance axis and resisting kind of Israeli and U.S. Uh, domination in the region. And this involves, you know, obviously Iran, various militias in Iraq and the, the popular mobilization forces in Iraq, which are part of the Iraqi government, um, Syria, uh, Yemen and the Houthi kind of movement there and Hamas, Islamic Jihad, uh, Hezbollah, and Lebanon. So together, these are a network of uh, 
this kind of Iran-backed regional alliance. As you've seen things unfold since uh, October seventh, and the, the you know the the people, a lot of people have been watching the the Israel Lebanon border and and the exchanges of fire that have been happening there. The uh, you know few times that there've been uh, Palestinian militants uh, apparently trying to infiltrate northern Israel over the border. People are watching this very nervously for the possibility of an expansion of the conflict. What's your sense of what? is happening there and what Hezbollah wants, I, I sort of feel like if they wanted to to escalate this into a, another front in the war, they would do that. And the fact that they haven't yet uh, suggests to me that for a variety of reasons, it's not uh, what they would like to see happen. But I, you, as you've been observing it, what's your take? Yeah, it's hard to say what the Iranian or Hezbollah red line is. And I think also it's, Iran doesn't have total control over Hezbollah or these regional allies that, you know, beyond a certain, I mean, they ultimately make their own decisions and, you know, sometimes without the green light from Tehran. So that's also important. But with respect to what could trigger a Hezbollah incursion, we've heard a lot of saber rattling from Hezbollah, from Iranian officials. You know, the Iranian foreign minister the other day said that there could be preemptive action on the behalf of Hezbollah and kind of these various regional groups in the coming hours. I think he said this the other night, um, Tuesday night. And obviously that has not happened, but there has been increased confrontations on the border, including Hezbollah releasing videos of targeting Israeli tanks, um, kind of various communications towers, they said, Israeli kind of retaliate, you know, firing artillery and strikes into Lebanon. So it's a very tense situation. But in terms of opening up a second front against Israel, right now, it seems like both sides are kind of waiting to see what the other potentially does. Israel has obviously delayed its ground invasion for a while now. You know, it's unclear. It was been very unclear when that was going to happen. And it got delayed earlier this week, although it seems like it is imminent now. And We'll have to see how Hezbollah reacts to that. But a regional war, I think the important, you know, that could really quickly explode into a regional war. If Hezbollah gets involved, you know, that there's a possibility that Syria might get involved, various groups in Iraq, you know, based, you know, this network of alliances that Iran has. And then we'll have to see how the Arab states react. So that could really rapidly escalate. And there's, you know, all sides, I think, do not want that to happen. Even the rhetoric from Tehran is, you know, more of restraints and more against regional war, although they are warning of the potential of a regional war. And they're kind of blaming it on Israel and saying, if, you know, in America, if America doesn't restrain Israel, we can restrain our allies, basically. Um, so there's a lot of saber rattling. Um, but I think in the Iranian, and we can get into this later, kind of going behind the nature of, you know, the nature of the Hamas attack, perhaps what, you know, what its goals were. I think maybe getting Israel into a ground invasion in Gaza and a quagmire in Gaza might be enough. And maybe that's, yeah, we can get into that, but I've also thought about that. Before we get into that, you know, what Iran might want to want to see happen here, maybe we could talk, you could talk a little bit more about some of the rhetoric. And, and we've seen, uh, you know, I, I first emailed you about doing this after the, the remarks from, 
uh, Iranian, the Iranian foreign minister of Saint Amir Abdullahian, where he was talking about preemptive attacks against Israel, which which seemed like a rhetorical escalation from what he had been saying previously. Um, but can you sort of characterize the the kind of development of of his comments in particular, um, and then what we saw following that out of the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, which seemed to me to be more restrained than than what. I mean, Abdullahian has, has been saying. And while you're doing that, as, as somebody who understands the Iranian political system very well, I think, you know, people see the foreign minister saying things and you think, well, foreign minister, that's secretary of state. That's, you know, any number of other foreign ministers. It's the, the analog. But uh, the Iranian system, it doesn't necessarily work that way. The foreign minister doesn't necessarily have a policy role. Can you talk about that as well as you're sort of going through this? Yes. Yeah, so Iran does have you know, this kind of Byzantine complex political system. Um, but right now, basically all the institutions of power in Iran are controlled by like one political camp. And that is the conservative, more hardline camp. Whereas, you know, from 2013 to 2021, the presidency in Iran was held by a moderate, uh, Hassan Rouhani, his foreign minister was uh, this veteran diplomat named Javad Zarif, and they're the ones who negotiated the Iran nuclear deal with Obama, and they were in charge during the Trump administration and all the kind of maximum pressure and escalations that Iran faced then. And during the Rouhani era, there really was a tension between Rouhani's administration, the foreign ministry, and then these more conservative hardline forces in the Revolutionary Guards and other institutions and the Supreme Leader Khamenei. And this really actually was a major public issue in Iran, you know, to the point that there was tapes of Javad Zarif leaked that in which he was criticizing the IRGC's role. Um, but now, like, there is much more kind of unity and cohesion between definitely the presidential administration in Tehran, the foreign ministry and the IRGC and various other organs of the Islamic Republic. And, you know, the foreign ministry is definitely not you know, enact, you know, coming up with the foreign policies, but it is executing them. And I think it's very much in line with what the IRGC wants right now, the Revolutionary Guards, what Khamenei wants, whereas in the past there was some divisions, you know, under Zarif. Um, and now with respect to, you know, Khamenei's remarks, I think we're more, you know, trying to say that Iran was not involved in the Hamas attack. And, um, but also, you know, warning more implicitly that, you know, at some, at some points, you know, these, the Muslims of the world, he said, or these resistance groups, they're going to grow impatient and restless. And then at that point, there's nothing that, you know, they can do. So he's trying to imply that, that eventually, you know, there is potentially some red line or something that at which point these groups will get involved. Um, but again, it's unclear what that red line is is and you know i think one thing that abdullahian said that was interesting was that you know a lot of these groups in the region obviously they've been engaged in a very brutal proxy war with israel for years now iran and israel and abdullahian said something like if you know if they go and if israel goes and attacks hamas now and we don't do anything you know then they'll come after hezbollah then they'll go after like iran or Iraq or things like that. So the idea being, you know, the argument being that now would be the time to, to go, you know, 
push back against Israel or, you know, potentially have this all out confrontation and not wait for Israel to kind of do it on its own time and go after Hamas and go after Hezbollah, something like that. So these are, you know, it's very concerning rhetoric. And I think, you know, tensions of, you know, this is the peak tensions that I've ever seen following this conflict. And, um, but yeah, the context of it is also important and maybe we can get more into that as well. Well, why, yeah, why don't we do that? So talk about the, the, the context and, um, you know, I, 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 I wondered, um, my initial reason for wanting to talk to you was whether the, the rhetoric had escalated to the point where Iran's credibility was going to be on the line if nothing, you know, if nothing happened, if the Israelis went into Gaza or go into Gaza now and there's no reaction from the, you know, the, the, uh, resistance axis has, has do you do you feel like they've put themselves in a position now where they're going to look foolish if there's you know if they if they moderate or kind of modulate their response yeah that's a very important point um you know all that i think goes down to whether they have set a firm publicly stated red line and i haven't seen that really i think you know Certainly Khamenei's remarks, who is the ultimate kind of, uh, she has the ultimate say on foreign policy in, in Iran. He didn't give anything that really necessarily approached a red line, I would say. I mean, he said, you know, the most he said was that Iran is kind of pursuing restraints and other people are asking Iran to pursue restraints, but America needs to also restrain Israel. And there's eventually there might not be, Iran might not be able to restrain these groups, but he didn't say, like, if Israel does X, then we're going to do this. So that even Abdullahian didn't really say that. I mean, they talked a little bit. They said they played around with, like, you know, ground incursion could, you know, lead to escalation or even a humanitarian corridor that that was the condition that they had. Um, but I would say with respect to the credibility, I mean, I think, yeah, that would it might take a hit. But I think um Again, we haven't seen a firm red line for it to really, I think, hurt Iran's credibility amongst its allies. Part, I think, of the context here that we should talk about is the media environment in the United States. And you know this quite well. But can you can you help people understand what goes on to produce, for example, you know, within two days of the October 7th attacks by Hamas and, and other militant groups? Uh, a big expose i think it was two days it was it was some absurdly short period of time like this you know exclusive expose in the wall street journal iran is responsible for all of this they approved it they planned it you know it's all their operation which everybody denies the u.s israel winds up denying it, and the wall street journal has to walk it back what's the what's the impetus for immediately trying to make this about iran and, and sort of the environment in D.C. and, you know, in the kind of think tank media world. Yeah, it's quite astonishing because, you know, the Hamas attack on Israel was a massive intelligence failure on behalf of the Israelis, Israel's allies, the U.S., you know, basically the most advanced, sophisticated intelligence and security organizations in the world. Like they had no idea that this was coming, that, you know, these thousands of militants in the West in, in Gaza were planning this potentially for a year, I saw in the New York Times, it said some of the planning documents went back a year that they found. Um, so they had no idea that this was going to happen. And then 
lo and behold, a day after it happens in the Wall Street Journal, which is, you know, a neoconservative kind of publication that for years has been, you know, warmongering on Iran and really just pushing a lot of propaganda aimed at increasing U.S.-Iran confrontation and war and preventing diplomacy that a day later, you know, Wall Street Journal has all the details, you know, just by citing a few, you know, they cited, you know, Syrian people or, you know, I think even somebody in Iran, I don't know, you know, these dubious sources. And I think some Wall Street Journal journalists have also come out. There was some reporting that there was internal division and a lot of journalists within the Wall Street Journal were also against this going out. So, I mean, it's ideologically driven paper. And I think that goes to the context, the broader context, which there is a, you know, there's a lot of ideology at play in this conflict, both on the side of the Iranians, but also on the side of America. And I think for the U.S. side that, you know, this idea that, you know, Iran, the Islamic Republic, this government that is not kind of aligned with the United States that has kind of um, pushed back against U.S. interests in the region, that it needs to be, we can't deal with it, we can't engage with it, we can't do, we shouldn't do diplomacy with it. This is basically the neoconservative worldview in America, I would say, that it needs, we basically need a regime change policy. There's, you know, it needs to be punished, it can't be made, it needs to be made an example of. So this has been going on for decades, you know, and really ratcheted it up under Trump. So I think, yeah, that's the Wall Street Journal and the various neoconservative outlets and kind of think tanks and in Washington, D.C. have always been trying to kind of aggrandize this Iranian threat and create a justification for conflict. What what has been going on in Iran itself? Has there been any, you know, civil society response to Hamas or the uh, Israel bombardment of Gaza, or do we not know? Yeah, so in Iran, you know, Obviously, we have to differentiate between the Iranian government and all the various organs of the Iranian government and the Iranian people writ large, you know, civil society groups. And the government has obviously been very unified in support of Hamas, the Palestinians, um, it's even kind of reformist people, even former reformist president Khatami, various sideline reformist people who are sidelined within the current system. They have still come out and supported this. But then... In Iranian civil society and amongst the Iranian public, it's a more complex picture. Obviously, there's a lot of discontent in Iran. Many people are strongly opposed to the government. We just had this massive uprising last year where the government killed, you know, upwards of, you know, over 500 people, at least uh, protesters were killed. And so there's a lot of discontent with Iran. And there is a lot of, there is a sentiment that, you know, what basically like whatever the Islamic Republic supports, a lot of people are polar opposites. So whereas historically there's been widespread sympathy within Iran for the Palestinian cause right now. And, you, you know, a lot of this, there's also these massive media operations that have, you know, very dubious sources of funding, you know, like Iran International is this outlet that we know was funded by Saudi Arabia or Manato is this monarchist Iranian outlet. And they're just pumping in a lot of disinformation. And they're very, you know, 100% pro Netanyahu. So you have this information warfare, you have the discontent in Iran. So one outcome of that is that there are Iranians, you know, including within Iran, we, you know, are basically, it comes down to that we don't, you know, it's not our fight. Why are we intervening in the Palestinian conflict? And, you know, and they're more even sympathetic towards Israel now, but it's a, 
it's not black and white. Like in the past couple of weeks, there's also been tons of Iranian civil society activists, um, celebrities, athletes who, you know, on Instagram, they posted in support of the Palestinian cause. Like I would say still the overwhelming amount of Iranian people within the country are very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. But because of Iranian domestic politics, some people are more uh, critical of the Palestinians and the Israel, you know, more sympathetic towards Israel. But, you know, again, it's a it's a different views. It's not monolithic in Iran. So I think the thing that people are most worried about, which you have gestured toward already, is the future of the region. And this is obviously a moment of transition in the region after, you know, 20 plus years of U.S. wars, uh, I mean, 70 plus years of, of U.S. and Soviet and China and all these other great powers intervening in the region. Where do you see the region itself going after this event? Derek and I were talking about yesterday, you know, there's a world where Israel invades and in three months, four months, five months, six months, we're quote unquote back to normal and everyone forgets about this. Or do you think this is a genuine transition point in the history of the region. And Sina, I know just to jump on on the back of that, I think um, it might be helpful to sort of talk about regional dynamics prior to October 7th and, and certainly, you know, prior to uh, one the, the big thing that's happened since, you know, I first reached out to you, which is the uh, the Athley Hospital bombing uh, earlier this week, which seems to have, you know, ratcheted up a regional response. We've seen protests, we've seen countries that were Arab countries that were maybe a little bit on the fence going to come down much harder uh, in their rhetoric against Israel. Uh, I, I, you know, the, we were in a, in a place where China was brokering relationships between the Saudis and Iran, but at the same time, Israel and the U S were trying to pull the Saudis into an alliance. It was essentially an anti-Iran defense alliance, uh, all, you know, in, in, for the sake of normalization. So maybe can you sort of describe that push and pull and where things were and how and and then, you know, get into how they've maybe changed as a result of uh, everything that's happened for the last couple of weeks? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think I'll first approach this like historically, like if we look at historically the outcome of these kind of interventions by the U.S. and its allies. So even, you know, Hezbollah, for example, Israel, when it went into Lebanon in 1982, the goal was to wipe out the PLO, basically put an install a pliant Christian government. And we saw that, you know, massively backfired that, you know, a creation of, you know, an outcome of that as a result of the Israeli invasion and kind of, you know, war in Lebanon was the creation of Hezbollah. And if we look at, you know, same track record in, you know, the U.S. and Afghanistan spending trillions of dollars, decades, you know, the Taliban is back in charge or in Iraq, you know, Bush went in there and wanted to, you know, make it some pliant pro-American state and, you know, not aligned with Iran. And obviously Iraq is what it is now. We're very close to Iran, you know, Yemen, the Houthis, basically Saudi Arabia spent billions, you know, eight year long war. And um, the Houthis have cemented their control there. So that, I think, you know, in terms of the Israelis and what, you know, an inc- a ground invasion of Gaza could potentially entail, you know, result in, I think, you know, their goals are to get rid of Hamas, to, I guess, try to install a 
a more favorable political order there for them. But I mean, the past does not bode well for them. You know, the past history of these incursions. But in terms of um, the regional context of this, yeah, we see, you know, the U.S. is basically the Middle East, Persian Gulf region, you know, something like over a third of global energy exports come from the Persian Gulf. And, you know, it's a major kind of uh, part of the global economy. It's very strategic. And the U.S. for decades has tried to, you know, be the dominant external power in this region to, you know, have favorable governments in place. And it has basically created the search, it has upheld and created and upheld the security architecture, this U.S.-led, U.S.-supported security architecture in the region that is basically underpinned by all of these kind of authoritarian regimes, you know, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, under whether, you know, the various Gulf states, um, and Israel. And the U.S., you know, it's always been in, and Iran has been the spoiler to, to kind of U.S. influence in the region. And, you know, creating unity, more unity and alliance and close ties between the U.S. and the Arab states, who are both America's allies, but, you know, historically at odds with each other. This is like a major, this would be a major strategic win for the U.S. and Washington. And they've been trying to do this for years and years unsuccessfully until, you know, we've seen as U.S.-Iran tensions really ratcheted up since 2018 and maximum pressure and the Iran nuclear deal falling apart because Trump left it. That, you know, we had the Abraham Accords, the, the Arab states. You know, I think many people basically thought the Palestinian issue is kind of like, you know, Israel is just going to go ahead and you know, control them and slowly annex the West Bank and expand its settlements. And it's basically done, like at very little cost to Israel. There's nothing, you know, and so Arab states like might as well just normalize. People don't really care anymore or we can get away with it, basically. And so I think this Hamas attack really upset a lot of these calculations that, no, this is not going to be, this is not over, that, you know, this is, there's not going to be, it's not going to be like there's going to be no costs and now Israel is, is going to do this massive assault and, you know, the Arab publics, Arab streets, which is obviously unlike their government, is very much sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. And so and, you know, these are authoritarian states, but at some point they have to be responsive to public opinion, especially, you know, they're worried about another Arab Spring. But it goes to the to the point of, you know, America's security architecture in the region and how sustainable this is, because. The U.S. is basically pinning all of its kind of hopes for the region on these, you know, propping up these autocratic regimes, keeping them in charge, you know, propping up, you know, what Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, what Israeli human rights groups like Beth Salem say that is it apartheid government in Israel. So this is our security architecture in the region. We need to sustain this. And um, I don't it doesn't seem that sustainable to me. I mean, I would never bet on authoritarianism being sustainable, like another Arab Spring happening, uh, or as we see in, in Saudi Arabia. But Biden has basically doubled down on this. Biden came in, called, you know, when he was elected, he was calling Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, pariah. He was seemingly at odds with Netanyahu, you know, in the face of all of Netanyahu's interventions in American politics, and especially against Democrats. Uh, but we've seen that he's basically reversed course to what Trump was doing, trying to expand the Abraham Accords, trying to really just 
you know, placate Mohammed bin Salman, give him whatever he wants. And he wants a lot. You know, Mohammed bin Salman wants a security guarantee. So the U.S. would go to war for him and his, you know, authoritarian regime. Um, he wants, it seems like the whole nuclear fuel cycle, basically enrichment on Saudi soil, which is what the whole U.S.-Iran nuclear dispute has been about. Like, you know, Iran shouldn't, you know, should have either very limited or no enrichment. And which basically means Saudi Arabia could might eventually also become a nuclear weapons threshold state. And so th- we were, you know, the ha- one context of this Hamas attack and what's happened in the past couple of weeks is that it seemed like, you know, this, the negotiations between Israel and Saudi Arabia and the United States were making progress that they were headed towards normalization. And it was unclear exactly what the U.S. would have given, but these were the things that the Saudis wanted. And that would have been really, I think, disastrous if, if Biden did that. But now we see that, you know, all the anger in the Arab world. And like you said, these these governments that were more on the fence are more, um, you know, like they're putting off normalization talks right now. We'll see how long that lasts. But I think the worse that this conflict gets, the more that it drags on, the more that that process is, on, you know, faces a very uncertain future and it might be doomed. But we'll have to see. Sina, can you talk about the U.S. Uh, I- in the region and what something like this does? And obviously the U.S. doesn't have a great image in, in Iran to begin with necessarily. I mean, you know, it's not a monolith, but uh, there's been a lot of back and forth uh, in that relationship for a while now. Um, but we've seen, even in, even with respect to Iran, as a consequence of the attacks on October 7th, the U.S. has decided to unilaterally quash yet another deal that it supposedly negotiated in good faith with Iran. So, you know, that's one thing we could talk about is what kind of credibility does the U.S. have uh, anymore after doing this twice? We're in, you know, full me twice territory here. But also just sort of broadly speaking, what is your sense of what this kind of wrapping their the arm wrapping our arms around Israel come hell or high water, no matter how violent the response in Gaza gets. Um what is that, you know, the US then it seems to me owns the consequences of this to some degree, uh, with with the publics certainly across the Middle East. But what does that do uh foreign policy wise for an administration and in, in the Biden administration that's tried to do a lot of work kind of cultivating the so-called global south cultivating the middle east in particular against russia against china how much of that do you think could be undone here i think it could be the collapse of biden's middle east policy um which has been disastrous and that's going to have global ramifications i mean russia i'm sure is this is all very good for russia and distracting from the ukraine war depending you know if it doesn't escalate to regional war it'll be it's very good for china and it making inroads in the middle east and with the global south in general it's very strategically disastrous um i think it's a very awkward moment for a lot of western politicians because this government in israel is you know preceding all of this is openly fascistic you know like the ministers in netanyahu's government have, you know long been engaging in like genocidal rhetoric racist rhetoric um and, you know, they're definitely not Democrats. They've been trying to undo the kind of uh, democratic institutions in Israel, obviously all the protests. So now we're seeing this kind of this. It's like as if we're in some alternate reality 
and all these people are hugging Nathan. You know, all I mean, granted, you know, the Hamas attack was horrific. There's lots of kind of sympathy that is that is very kind of appropriate, and one would expect that. But you know, to totally leave out the context or kind of ignore the context of what the nature of the Netanyahu government. That to me, I mean, and as this conflict drags on, as the kind of war crimes in, in Gaza kind of escalate and the world becomes more aware of them, I think this they're going to be in even more of an awkward position. Like, it's not easy to defend someone like Nate. It's like, you know, when they were trying to defend Mohammed bin Salman in, in Yemen or something, you know, like it can, there's going to be, I think, growing public backlash in Europe and America eventually. And then with respect to Iran and negotiations with Iran, absolutely, you know, this idea of credibility, like <clears throat> a lot of the neocons in Washington, they often, when it comes to kind of a military strike or kind of, you know, America having to go to World War Three for like, you know, Taiwan or Latvia or something, they're all like U.S. credibility. If we don't do it, everything's over. But, you know, when it comes to actual diplomat, you know, diplomacy that has worked with our adversaries to prevent war, you know, they don't care about our credibility. And the ramifications of that are, I think, very profound for American kind of global strategy. Like, so with Iran, you know, Obama negotiated the 2015 nuclear deal. The deal was working. Iran's, the lid was put on Iran's nuclear program. Its enrichment was reduced to basically, you know, 3.67%. It barely had any centrifuges left under the most kind of intense inspections regime in history. It was a totally transparent nuclear program. The deal was working up until 2018. Trump was kind of, you know, even Trump's State Department was confirming it was working. The IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, was confirming it was working. And then Trump in this, you know, I think hubris is a lot, is a, you know, it's a big factor for the U.S. and Israel. This hubris that, you know, we're still the global hegemon, the global dominant power. There's nothing that, you know, we're not going to let go of this. We can't be challenged. We still have the most power. I think they're learning the hard way that the world has changed, that the world has become more multipolar. And, you know, Iran so now has massively expanded its nuclear program. It's, it's you know, enrichment over 60%. Basically, it could build a bomb in less than 10 days if it wants to. That's where it's at. If it makes a decision like next week, Iran can have a bomb. So America's in a much more restrained place too, and so is Israel. I think, you know... With respect to this Hamas attack, retaliating against it, America, I think, and Israel are not in a strong regional or global position right now. The last thing that would, they would want is a war with Iran, um, you know, with what's happening in Ukraine, China, you know, and then all the domestic problems at home. It's, a, it's election year, this threat of Trumpism and, you know, all the threats that that poses for America. And to have a war with Iran right now that has... A, big regional deterrence network that is actually very capable and formidable. Like Hezbollah has 150,000 missiles by most, you know, at least much more sophisticated force than it was in 2006 when the last war with Israel happened. They have precision guided missiles. They can do a, you know, war would be very costly, I think, for the U.S. and Israel. And Iran, you know, Iran itself is much more sophisticated militarily. We saw this in recent years, you know, like after Soleimani was was assassinated, that Iran retaliated by doing these targeted missile strikes in the U.S. military base in Iraq. They were very, you know, precise. It was precision missiles that it was just a capability that there was doubt that they had kind of mastered. But it seems like now there's no doubt about it. 
same when, when they struck the Saudi oil facilities in 2019. So a war would be very costly. And I think that hopefully deters all sides from it. But uh, I think, yeah, I think the U.S. position is the world is changing. U.S. credibility. So right now we just had this this deal a month ago where after years of escalation, there was a rare instance of diplomacy where the U.S. and Iran agreed to a prisoner exchange. And as part of this um, overall deal that America you know, gave the go-ahead to release $6 billion of Iranian money, it was Iranian funds that were sanctioned and frozen in South Korea uh, illegally under international law, actually. And um, even the ICC ruled on it in, tw- in 2018 and said that, you know, the Iran should be able to access its money for humanitarian purchases. And it was not able to do that. And so what the Biden administration did is make this money available, moving it to Qatar heavily under supervision and every transaction would be have to be approved that it would be for humanitarian purchases. Now, in the wake of, you know, all this escalation in Israel-Palestine, the rhetoric has been kind of muddy to me. I mean, initially we had this Wall Street Journal report, I believe it, or a Washington Post report that it was the Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, and she said something like, this deal's not, you know, Iran's not going to get any of this money, it's frozen again. But then I think Blinken and them were a little bit more kind of cautious. They didn't explicitly say that the money was not going to be accessible. They said something like, it's not, it hasn't been accessed yet. So I don't know, but if, if this has been reneged on again, I think that is pretty much a death blow to kind of U.S.-Iran diplomacy for many, many years. I mean, there was a hope that this deal could be another stepping stone, rebuild some trust. You know, Biden gets reelected, then we can potentially have another nuclear deal. But um, and it would de-escalate tensions for the next year. But that's all out the window. This is gone, I think. And then Iran, I think, is just going to wholly ride out any potential for de-escalation with the West and really deepen the size even more of Russia, China, regional countries. And I think many countries might have that calculation. I think that's a good place to leave it. And we will, of course, see how things unfold. Sina Tusi again, uh, senior non-resident fellow at the Center for International Policy and author of the Beyond Borders newsletter. Thanks again for coming on the program. And uh, we'll uh, be having you back soon, I'm sure. Thanks for having me. This was great. Thanks. 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 Thanks.